Hello and welcome back to Out of Curiosity. This is our podcast where we're looking for biblical clarity for modern questions. Once again, I'm Garland. And I'm Nick. And uh, today is one of my favorite questions, one of my favorite things to get to discuss. How many Uh, things have you called your favorite questions? Most of these are my favorite. That's why we're doing them, I think. But this one really is one of my favorites. Um, And and it's the question of what happens after death and heaven. Um, it, It gets asked frequently um, we interact with it uh, in our culture and in our world, obviously, because uh, death is a part of life. It's a reality that uh, that every single human, at least at this point and where we're at, will experience. And so um, when we think about heaven, I think what we often think about and what comes to mind for, I think, most of us or most people I've talked to is a little bit odd and not that close to what the Bible says. Uh, and that's unfortunate because yeah. when I think of heaven, at least the picture has been portrayed to me in our kind of post uh, Dante's Inferno, post medieval world, here's what usually comes to mind. You tell me if this is what comes to mind for you as well. I either think heaven's going to be like a disembodied smoke cloud experience where we're sort of floating and hovering somewhere up above. That's one view people have. Another view is that heaven is like we're on a cloud. We have these ancient instruments with like winged naked babies and it's sort of peaceful and blue. And maybe another view is the one I think that I had a lot growing up was heaven is basically one long eternal worship service where worship music is playing and God's on his throne in the middle and it just goes on and on, except it's occasionally interrupted. You have eternity after all. It's occasionally interrupted with uh, a calling of names and your name gets called. You go down to the middle and then they play all of your life, all of the secret things that you didn't want anybody to know, all of your bad motives, they play it on like the jumbo screen uh, that you're in some stadium, and they play it on the jumbo screen. You you see all of the bad stuff you did and all the bad motives you did, even your good stuff with, you disintegrate into a puddle of tears and mush, and then Jesus sort of angrily looks down and says, well, I guess I saved you, so I, I guess you have to stay in here, get back to your seat, and let's sing some more songs. And then a couple thousand years later, they call the next person down, and the thing continues. Is that <laughs> Is that anybody else's way of oh, looking yeah. at it? And the thing that's sad, I think, about that is, you know, for, for I know I'm this way, uh, I love God, and I have a hard time making it through a 65-minute church service. Yeah. And so the idea that I walked away with was, if that sounds miserable to me, to be in an eternal church service, that must mean I don't love God enough. Yeah. There's something wrong with me if that doesn't sound awesome. And if you can't muster up the kind of emotion in the service, then you're something's off. And yeah, yeah. So we got to we got to deal with this, I think, a little bit. And uh, this is going to be beginning a conversation that we're going to have kind of multiple episodes on talking about what happens after we die. And the the technical way to talk about this would be called personal eschatology. So uh, we're talking about the individual persons, not necessarily uh, what's called general eschatology or the picture of end times and nations and all that stuff. So we want to just trace a theme of what happens after death and uh, try to get a more 
biblical picture to uh, what's going to take place. And hopefully it's inspiring. And so in light of that, Nick, kind of walk us through, get us going on this conversation. Well, so uh, maybe I'll, I'll survey the whole picture first before we dive in. So generally... What the, the picture of Scripture is, is that the immediate place that we go when we die is not our final destiny. So that, that is a major category adjustment for most people when they think about heaven. Absolutely. N.T. Wright uses the term life after, life after death. Yeah. And so there's, there's what happens immediately when we die, but then there's the, what comes later that is actually what we're destined for as people who are followers of Jesus. And, and we're going to talk in this episode about what happens for people who are in Christ, people who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior. The discussion of what happens to non-believers when they die is a separate one that we'll address in a later podcast. Um, But for today, we are focusing on the destiny of believers. And so there is what theologians call the intermediate state, which is what happens immediately when we die in Christ, and then the eternal state, which is where we are ultimately going. And, And so one of the interesting bits of data in the New Testament is that we get very little information about that intermediate state. And maybe even maybe even more surprising is in the Old Testament, it's even less. Even less. The Old Testament is even longer, and yet there's even less material on this. Absolutely. So the focus of the New Testament is on that eternal state, what will ultimately be our destiny. And we get very little about the intermediate state. And so uh, one of the questions I wonder about is why? I mean, it's such an important question to me. What happens immediately when I die? Mm -hmm. And that didn't seem to be this huge pressing question in the New Testament. And uh, a metaphor that might help make sense of that a little bit. um, I've had some friends do international adoptions. And, And here's the process of how that plays out. They will apply and then they will get paired with a child. They will be told, this is the child you are going to adopt. They can start building a relationship with that child. They can start Skyping with that child. They can start getting to know that child. And then there will come a day when they will actually fly to that country where that child is, do the adoption there, and then they will fly home and bring the child into their new home. Right. Now, when they're doing, picture that Skype that conversation they're happening, having with their paired child. I can imagine them talking about their siblings that they're going to have. Um, I can imagine them showing them the picture of the bedroom they're going to live in. The school they're going the to go to. The school they're going to go to. All the stuff that their new home is going to be like. Now, I, I, can, I imagine that very little of their time is spent describing the seat on the plane they're going to sit on while they're flying home. You're going to be, we're going to be in seat 4D. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's going to have some, some magazines in front of you. Yeah. You're going to get some peanuts, and we're going to you know, get some free soda. They don't focus a lot on the plane ride that connects them from where they were to where they'll be. The focus is all on where they're going to land when they get home. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a fair analogy for what we're talking about with the intermediate state. Right now, we are in a relationship with God where we have been tied to him by faith. We can know him. Uh, we pray to him. He is with us. But there's also a real sense in which we're, we're not with him in a certain sense and that his home is in heaven and we're on earth and we're waiting for this coming together of heaven and earth. Mm-hmm. And then there is going to be a time in between our final destiny that we'll talk about in a moment where we are with God in heaven, but we're still waiting to make it home. And if you think about what life is like on that airplane ride for the newly adopted child, they're in mom and dad's arms. Mm -hmm. They are with their parents in a way they haven't been. 
but they haven't made it home yet. And I think that is a fair description of what we call the intermediate state. So there's two really key verses, uh, passages in the New Testament that address this question. One comes in Philippians chapter 1. Okay. In Philippians chapter 1, uh, Paul is in prison, and he's, he's contemplating the idea of his own death. And, and, you know, what would be better? Will he continue to live on the earth and minister? Or it, is it time for him to go ahead and die? And he's wrestling with which one he actually wants. Already, that's a pretty huge paradigm shift for humanity, mm-hmm. for someone to be content with their life, not in a place of despair, but legitimately questioning, is it better to die or to live on? Mm-hmm. And so um, in Philippians chapter 1, uh, Garland, would you read us verses 21 to 24? Yeah, this is Paul's famous for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And this is the context in which he's, he's, here he is in prison. He's wrestling through his life and the future of his ministry. And he says, for to me to live as Christ and to die as gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Okay, so a couple, two really key points to notice here. One, Paul assumes that dying, use the term departing, would mean to be with Christ. And he sees that as a good thing. There is something positive to be gained by being with Christ. That rules out some idea that we're in a soul sleep, that we're unconscious, um, because what he imagines is a situation where he is consciously with Christ at the moment of death. So after after Paul thinks, after he dies, he doesn't necessarily have a lot of this filled out, but he simply says, I'm with Christ. I'm with Christ. The second thing to notice is that he describes the, what it would be to not die as to remain in the body. So Paul has some understanding that right now he's living an embodied existence and death in some sense would be his person leaving his body and being with Christ. So that's Paul's understanding of what happens when he dies. Now, the next passage is very, very similar uh, in nature, and it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Okay. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. Would you go ahead and read those? Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Okay, so very similar concept. You can see a consistent thinking in Paul here that because where the New Testament describes Jesus being, because Jesus ascended in Acts chapter 1, he ascended to heaven to to be on the throne with the Father. That's where Jesus is, is in heaven. Now, by the Holy Spirit living with us, we are present with Jesus spiritually, but there's still a sense that Jesus is in heaven and we're on earth. And Paul understands that to die would mean leaving his body and being present with the Lord. Right. So that is the clear, concrete thing we can say about the intermediate state, is that to die for a Christian means, in some sense, their person being separated from their body and being present with the Lord Jesus in heaven. 
and that that's a good thing. It's hard to say a lot more than that about the intermediate state. Like Jesus on the cross to the, to the, the uh, rebel saying, today, not in some disembodied state or in right. some soul sleep, like today you will be with me. Yep. And he calls it paradise. It yeah. sounds good. It sounds good. Um, that's our intermediate heaven. And so we can definitely say that for believers to die, they're in a good situation, okay? They are in what we would call paradise with Jesus, and yet, they're not home yet. That being apart from the body with Jesus in heaven is not the final hope of salvation. So, Garland, tell us, what, what is that final hope of salvation? Well, just uh, before we even transition there, you, you noted it's a good thing. And I do, like, Paul, in reflecting on this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, we don't grieve like the rest who have no hope. There should be a noticeable, and we've, we've seen this happen in our pastoral ministry, there is a noticeable difference and should be of a funeral of somebody who was in Christ and one who was not. The difference would be hope. There's a, that we don't grieve like the rest because we know that that person, even though it may be in a temporary intermediate state, the plane ride, in your analogy, is with Christ. They're in the arms of Christ. Now the question is, what happens then? And yeah. if the biblical picture is spends almost all of its attention talking about the home, yeah. the destination, then maybe we should spend more time thinking about that as opposed to the plane ride. Yes. And so uh, it, it, it tends to be the case that we exclusively think about the plane ride, the right. intermediate state. We At funerals, that's the thing we talk about. Uh, when important people in our culture die, we say, they're, they're up, they're floating above us right now. And what, what we want to do just on this second little part of this is to try and kind of knock down a little bit of a bad philosophical view that has crept into Christianity and has really done so for centuries. And that view, we've talked about it in the Where Does Human Life Begin podcast. It's, a, it's essentially a Platonic view. And what, Nick, explain the Platonic philosophy in 30 seconds if you could. Got it, on it. So in... Platonic philosophy. Plato is really wrestling with a lot of questions. Why do uh, why do some things change and some things stay the same? What's ultimately most real? And uh, what he concluded was that the material world, the things we can taste and touch and smell, uh, that that is a world that's always changing. And because it's always changing, it's not the most real. The most real things must be eternal. And so he decided that what's eternal is the immaterial ideas or principles behind this material world. He called them the forms. Um, and so th there are lots of good actions or uh, good tools or good people, but all of them are representing a more eternal thing that is the idea of goodness. And so all these forms are immaterial and eternal. And so uh, in a sense, paradise or salvation or the goal Everything ultimate is in an immaterial kind of platonic heaven of forms. And that's, that's the key idea right there that has crept into Christianity that I think we have to adjust. The idea that the body, this earth, is somehow bad or somehow right. uh, the, the source of all the problems, and our goal is to escape it, to get up to heaven, to float out of this material place and get to the place where the forms or God is. And we've taken that idea and we have, we have infused it with our version of God in heaven. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have this picture of heaven. It's this place where you escape the earth and you get to go be up there somewhere. And 
Essentially, that is exactly the opposite of the entire narrative of the scripture. And a lot of that comes from misunderstanding what Paul means when he talks about the flesh. Correct. So we, we hear Paul talk about the flesh versus the spirit, and we assume he means material versus mm-hmm. immaterial. Mm-hmm. But when Paul talks about the flesh in that context, he's, he is referring to um, at the part of us that is bent towards sin and away from God. Mm-hmm. So the contrast is not between material bad, immaterial good. It's between uh, living apart from God and for ourselves bad versus living in step with mm-hmm. the Spirit good. Mm-hmm. And this is essentially what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is teaching us. So in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we have humanity made as an embodied, we t- said in a previous podcast, the who I am. It's not a soul that's dropped down into this bad body thing. That's not the picture at all. We are material. We are body and nefesh is the Hebrew word for my being, my everything, my essence, whatever you want to call it. And to be a human, to be a person is to be a an embodied nefesh. The only time where that will not be the case is this strange plane ride that the biblical authors don't seem to know exactly how to describe except to say, be with Christ. Instead, they're going to spend all of their attention focusing on what it looks like when resurrection new creation takes place. What will it look like when the nefesh is now set free from, as you called the fl- this thing called the flesh, this power of evil that corrupts and is now capable of living as it was intended to live with God as King and Lord. So just to try to wrap up, Garland, paint a picture for us. Kind of summarize the biblical story. What does that new creation life look like? So if you look at the, the, the biblical picture, what, what we have is we begin in a garden. We begin in a temple with God, dwelling with his people in with order and goodness and blessing. It says God bless them. It's this picture that we have in the beginning of our Bible. And because of the fall, what we, what we call the fall, we now see this power called sin has corrupted that and death is is been brought into the condition. And now instead of order, we have disorder. And the story of the scripture is God reclaiming, restoring what got broken in Genesis 3. And what's interesting is what we see in the end of our Bible is now we have a garden, but it's not just a garden. It's a garden that's that's surrounded by a city and it's filled with those who have been restored. And what's fascinating is it's past all the symbolic language that revelation is using and apocalyptic language that it's using. It is painting a picture of a recreated, refashioned, beautified, ordered earth universe materially. And the culminating centerpiece of that entire story is the death and then resurrection of Jesus. So as Jesus is resurrected, he's resurrected bodily materially. He enjoys food and friendship and conversation in a sunrise. He is with his disciples and he's discussing things with them. And I think when I always describe what is our eternal state going to look like, not the plane ride, but the home, the way I always describe it, I think this is what the biblical picture is trying to give us. All of the goodness of God and what he's created how he's created it, the function that he's given it to, to have, the beauty of, of a great meal with great friends, and having an amazing discussion while then hiking in God's material world that he's made and seeing an amazing sunset. All of that is meant to glorify God and bring us joy. Now imagine that material existence, that state, except without the corruption of sin, without the corruption of our brokenness and the drama and the injustice and all the things that hijack that. That is our picture of the, quote, eternal state. That's what heaven is going to be, the best of how God wired this 
world to function with God ruling and reigning as he intended to. And I, when I think about that, I'm like, that is a like if you're an outdoors person, outdoorsy person, you love going to the Buffalo and you love going out and just seeing what God, that's, that's a snapshot of it. That's like getting, that's like getting a glimpse of it, not floating away to some forever long worship service. And so when the, when the six-year-old says, I don't want to go to heaven because I won't be able to play soccer there, the answer is, who said you won't? Who said you won't? Why, why won't there be soccer and bike rides right. and woodworking and everything that humanity is made to love and enjoy about embodied existence on earth mm-hmm. made right forever? One of the things I always love uh, in thinking about this is nowhere does the scripture say that we become omniscient after yeah. we die. Like we become all-knowing. That, that's, I don't know where we got this idea that we'll have, all of our, we'll have all knowledge when we get to heaven. Here's what's exciting to me about that. Mm-hmm. Some of these very questions that we're wrestling through and out of curiosity, and what does the Bible mean here? Like we'll be able to continue to learn. Mm-hmm. And the more we learn about the infinite beauty and power and weight and awesomeness of God, the more we'll want to worship him. And we'll get that experience, that aha moment where you learn something about the Lord in a great conversation with one of your great friends. That is a snapshot of what the eternal state is to be. And if we could just recapture that, I think it would change the way we live in the day-to-day. Instead of trying to maximize our pleasure now, we recognize that what we have now is nothing compared to what we will have. There's a, there's a mistaken idea of what, it, what perfection means. Right. So there's two definitions of per- perfect. One is lacking flaws, and the other is having every good thing. Yeah, complete. Only God has every good thing. Right. Only God has every knowledge. So for us to be perfected means that we, are, we have the sin and brokenness removed. Mm-hmm. But Ephesians uh, describes our salvation being for the purpose of God showing us for all eternity the infinity of, of his grace. And so we're going to keep growing in that, keep learning in that. And so uh, one scholar has, has suggested rewording our hymn, How Great Thou Art, to say, instead of when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Um, perhaps a, a better reading would, would be when Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and heal this world. That's awesome. I would love that. It would be hard to sing. It's, it's we, harder to say the other way, right? But man, what a beautiful picture of restored life on earth, of human flourishing as with the glory and presence of God among us. Well, and that note is crucial because notice what happens in Revelation when Jesus returns. He doesn't come down and then float us all up to some cloudy place. He comes back here. Yeah. And yes, there's tons of symbolic language as to what's going on when Jesus comes back in Revelation 19. But it's him coming back to this earth and making it it, it it his home, restoring and fixing. How did you word that? How did that scholar word that for that hymn? To, to, uh, something to like heal to this heal world. Heal to this heal this world. world. Yeah. That's, that's a beautiful picture and probably more biblical. And another hymn that we have to probably toss away is the... Uh, the I'll fly away, I'll fly away. I love that song, and I love yeah. that old uh, that old gospel song. But it does create in us a, a kind of bizarre picture of floating yeah. away. And and the floating away picture is a decent one to describe the intermediate state. Sure, it's a decent one to say for the plane ride. There's a leaving the body and mm-hmm. going up to be with Christ. But the message is that's not the final stop. Mm-hmm. And the biblical authors don't seem to be that invested in that plane ride. No. Uh, they're really invested in the eternal state, and when they reflect on it, that's what they're reflecting on which is a pretty compelling view of our future in christ redeemed healed and living human life on earth with the glory of god among us as it was always meant to be can't wait this has been a fun discussion thanks for listening to out of curiosity thank you for listening to out of curiosity as we discussed what happens when you die 
For further study, we recommend looking in Scripture at Philippians 1, 23, 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8, John 14, 1-3, and Revelation chapters 20 and 21. We also recommend the books Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright, Heaven by Randy Alcorn, and the class Heaven and Hell from the Fellowship Training Center. If you want to send in a question or contact us, go to oocuriosity.com and follow us on Instagram at oocuriosity. Be sure to subscribe to keep up with future episodes.